0: Episode Nine: The End of History and the Last Man. It is perhaps the most important post-Cold War piece of literature released in the field of international relations. Francis Fukuyama's view of the future of democracy and the future of post-democracy was released in various forms from the late 1980s and into the early 1990s, from a lecture to an article to a fully-fledged book. Its central thesis of an end of history has been debated, argued about, and perhaps mostly misinterpreted, ever since it was introduced. The importance of Fukuyama to this podcast may not be immediately apparent. It wasn't for me, for sure. Yet it was an interview with the Vice President of El Salvador, Felix Loa, on the Max Kaiser Orange Pill podcast, released on the 19th of February, that opened my mind to the link. A lawyer talked in the interview about the desire of the sovereign nation of El Salvador to adopt Bitcoin as part of their interpretation of Fukuyama's thesis. The main thrust of the Salvadorian corollary to the end of history thesis is that the adoption of Bitcoin may reconstitute a restarting of history. I thought this was a highly interesting observation and interpretation of Fukuyama's work. Interesting enough for me. That I wanted to do an entire episode looking at the thesis and how it might be applied to Bitcoin. Fukuyama's concept is not the end of events, but the quote-unquote end of history, representing the end of ideology, as all political systems coalesce around forms of liberal democracy, first pioneered in the modern sense by England and then the United Kingdom the end of kingly aristocratic or oligarchical battles which coalesced into ideological wars which peppered the 20th century. What we call liberal democracy has become nearly universally adopted by all of mankind, leading to the end of history of mankind from the Neolithic revolution, which began the need for conquest over other lands, through to the Industrial Revolution and now to the information age. Liberal democracy, in its various guises, represents the end of a history of struggle and political slavery. It is the way man learns to live with themselves and others. Without the freedoms granted to us by Mother Nature that represented much of the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, we turned into more sedentary and passive animals. Violence then became a political tool, and became a conquest of land, title, and eventually, ideology. Foucault's thesis is not to suggest there will be no conflict, events, tragedies, or changes in future society. But that the historical struggle to determine what is the most effective form of government is now at an end. A struggle continuous since the Neolithic Revolution led to a lifestyle of farming. Fukuyama's book and thesis was published in the days of the 1990s, when more of Fukuyama's thesis appeared to be axiomatic within liberal and academic circles. The 1990s represented something of a silver age for much of Western civilization. Apart from post industrial areas like the Rust Belt in the United States or the north of England, much of life had never been freer or more prosperous than in the 1990s. Europe was at peace. With all countries, liberal democracies, and it coincided with the rise of the developing world. Yet the events of September 2001 undermined Fukuyama's view for some, and confirmed for some neocons that the world was heading towards a state more envisaged by Samuel Huntington and his clash of civilization thesis, more than the Fukuyama thesis of the post Cold World order. The West was engaging so-called militant Islam and began to engage what you might call post-collectivist communist China. Many therefore thought Huntington had a more accurate prediction for the future of international relations, even if it was bleaker than Fukuyama's. The End of History being written in the early 1990s, the book was able to predict many events that happened in the 1990s, with forms of liberal democracy increasing around the world and many authoritarian regimes turning into, at least, illiberal democracies. Fukuyama does give mention to the illiberalism of the Islamic world as a potential roadblock to the end of history, and some could say this is largely what happened. Yet in my mind, the threat of Islamic terrorism was overplayed, and resulted in governments being able to implement security states in the West without too many benefits for society. But the book highlights a key point, I think. Something we cannot deny has happened since 1900, and then 1945, and then 1989. The move away from the multitude of governmental types towards one type, liberal democracy. It strikes to me, therefore, one of the main problems of Fukuyama's thesis could therefore be the title. The title was coined as an ode to a Greek tradition of historical cycles, where smaller changes like the overthrowing of regimes and war, mixed with larger changes in history, like the great floods of mythology. Thus, history is ever redefined, reinterpreted, and often forgotten. Democracy in the Greek view is merely superseded by tyranny in a continual process, as political forms morph into another every generation or so. For this, think of Britain with the cyclical changes between the tyranny of King John. Oliver Cromwell or Henry VIII, the economic battles of aristocrats following the Industrial Revolution, the rise of Timocrats, landowners, and their battle for democratic rights in the Victorian era, to the tyranny of governmental control during the 20th century as the Nanny State looks ever more tyrannical and oligarchical. Buckinghamer makes clear that Christian theology believes in these changes of history too. as the Christian account of history makes clear a quote-unquote end of history is implicit in the writing of all universal histories. Close quotes. The idea of historical cycles has been argued by German philosophers Kant and Hegel too. Kant argued that history would have an endpoint, a final purpose of human freedom for quote, a society in which freedom under external laws is associated, in the highest degree, with irresistible power, i.e. a perfectly just civic constitution is the highest problem nature assigns to the human race." Kant said that in general terms, the mechanism of government would all be represented by liberal institutions. In this view, man leaves war and joins together to enjoy the arts and the sciences, so society can remain in competition. Hegel said that the quote history of the world is none other than the progress of the consciousness of freedom. These debates, from a Kantian or Hegelian sense of a progress of history, is of central concern to Foucault's thesis. Whether history is directional in its cyclical nature has been highly debated for millennia. It was something the ancients had debated too, from the Neolithic era to the industrial one. Technology develops and forces adoption by other societies and countries in order to compete. Once invented, society has a very difficult job in uninventing ideas or technologies. The development, cooperation, and competition of technology, since metallurgy beat stone, has been a constant in human history. Through famine and war, the nature of human competition has meant that there is a pattern of development and destruction and that history is largely not reversible. The rise and fall of societies due to technology is one we see a lot in my other podcast, 100 Greatest Inventions." Fukuyama makes it clear that many philosophers throughout history have seen these technological developments as the main driver of the cyclical theory of history. Fukuyama makes it clear that industrialization as a period of history was not one event, it was an event taking decades of slow developments, and originally consisting of light industries like textiles, before moving onto railways, chemicals and shipbuilding he labels as heavy industry, and which some others might call the Second Industrial Revolution. Since the end of heavy and new industrial processes coinciding with the end of the Second World War, society has changed again. The post-industrial society many of us live in has come with numerous changes in society. Almost as many changes as those experiencing the original industrialization process went through. The advance of the information and in the digital world has meant that only free market open societies are likely to prosper in the atmosphere of freedom, where any and all thought is allowed on an open exchange of ideas. Centralised economies are therefore unlikely to prosper in the information age, as development cycles of new products, like software, in this new age becomes a matter of months, not years and decades. We can see this in the economies of the most centralised economies on Earth. The Soviet and Chinese economies promote safe, innovative ideas and theoretical research in established areas, that may provide radically new ideas and technology. And insights that of capitalist societies. But then the research hits a dead end, and with the end of safe research, technological development stalls. The Soviets could pump money into nuclear physics, but then not have much brain capacity left over to develop consumer-grade items. Marx saw his theories as able to bring about a new epoch by allowing for a shorter working day and allowing the rest of mankind to spend their days writing poetry or whatever. Famously, Soviet peasants probably did only spend four hours a day working, leaving them in theory time to develop the great Russian novel or whatever. And of course we have the famous line, they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work, which highlights the lack of genuine work being done in this new Soviet economy. The lack of genuine intellectualism in the Soviet economy was further enhanced by the peasants who spent much of their free time trying to get the bread or other items they needed through the Byzantine Soviet resource allocation system, instead of perfecting the symphonies or ballets they were supposedly writing. History, as Fukuyama points out, is merely the categorization of separate events and the forgetting of less important events. The Universal History thesis requires the discarding of entire peoples or civilization not seen as important to the central plot of the historical narrative you are trying to delineate. A grand history, of course, is not very popular at present, with the focus on what you might call woke history. History is being rewritten, or at least reanalyzed, to cater to every subgroup. And the main narrative of history that is common amongst the English speaking peoples, sometimes called the Whig view of Europe history, has become nearly lost. The development of other narratives and discoveries of new sources of history is not necessarily the worst thing in the world, but one could argue, and I would too, that it takes away from history having this narrative and focus that engages us and turns it into a melange of disparate studies on tiny small points of historical intrigue. The development of this liberal Whig order was not defined, like communism was, by a single man, but by a panoply of the great intellectuals at the dawning of the Industrial Age. Hobbes, Locke, Jefferson, Madison, Hamilton, etc. It was this Anglo-Saxon tradition that largely invented what we now call modern liberal democracy. Perhaps the two most famous and most important philosophers in this new order were John Locke and Thomas Hobbes, who took different angles in their approach to the coming new order. Hobbes was known for his characterization of the state of nature being, quote, solitary poor, nasty brutal and short, close quotes, and he favoured a doctrine of absolute monarchy, as compared to Locke who was more liberal in our sense of the word, and asserted a right to revolution against tyranny. Locke defined the right to rule coming from the governed, not the governor himself. The governor at the time, of course, largely being the tyrannical monarchs of the early modern period. In Hobbes' view, man fights less out of a need and fights over trivialities, vanity or vainglory. The Anglo-Saxon tradition therefore differs from the Germanic one in that Hegel views the struggle of recognition as being markedly different. Hegel views the aristocratic warrior as a fundamental part of self-preservation. Hobbes views this as vanity. Fighting over a flag or a medal is the source of all violence, and goes against the fundamental fear of death all humans have. Hobbes views the social contract as man giving up their unjust pride and vanity in return for preservation and security. Yet, society still has the problem of a struggle for recognition in the populace that Hobbes especially never quite solves in his writing. He views absolutism as far better able to provide this recognition to the ordinary person, but that democracy allowed each individual to have some say in their own governance. The American experiment was therefore largely indebted to Hobbes' view of the world. Jefferson's self-evident truths about life at liberty and the pursuit of happiness were taken in a very real sense from Locke's writing and ideas about the nature of the social contract and a certain level of freedoms the state naturally owed its people. How can one view or reinterpret these ideas in a Bitcoin world? Well, the struggle for recognition is to reaffirm that everybody has value to society. In a capitalist society, these values are often and increasingly monetary in nature. Self-worth as well as actual worth is often tied into your monetary value. This is often the level of pay, material belongings, level of housing and even your relationship to money. The closer you are tied into the monetary production, either in locational position or your job, the better off you will be. In other words, if you live near the City of London in a banking or financial position, your level of worth in monetary value will likely be very high, as will your ranking within society. Poor status within a monetary standard will likely leave one with regret and anger about the current system. Without going into the nature of fiat money here, safe to say the current monetary system is not fair to all. Bitcoin offers a fairer society to all through the incorruptibility of its code. It allows each man the ability to struggle for recognition through fairer trade and commerce. The revolution Satoshi launched not only changed our monetary standards, but the future of mankind's net worth and self-value. We will value ourselves against our ability to trade and engage in commerce. This is where certain elements of the agorist tradition start to enter into my analysis of Fukuyama's work. A struggle for recognition through commerce backed by Bitcoin, is one solution to the problems society has with recognition that Hobbes, Hegel and Locke all viewed as essential for man to live together in a peaceful and prosperous society. The struggle for recognition is an innate part of society, and yet its manifestation on a political scale is often seen as a desire for power, and is divvying up between elites. Man has a natural desire to place a value on everything, including himself. It is a fundamental part of our personality and the source of our pride, anger and shame. One might call this ego. Therefore, good political order needs to be more than just a non-aggression pact between the demos in order to satisfy man's desire for recognition. It needs to satisfy his desire for dignity and worth. The struggle for recognition does not just relate to political life, but all elements of life. The workers on strike do not carry a sign saying, quote, I am a greedy person and want all the money I can extract from management, close quotes. The worker simply believes he has a certain worth that has not been valued correctly. So is often demanding higher pay, but also more recognition from management. Economic self-interest, according to Fukuyama, is of paramount importance to political order, with it often wrapped up in one's self-assertion. The demand for economic recognition in a modern capitalist economy is therefore linked with self-worth. Adam Smith, in The Theory of Moral Sentiment, argues that men seek riches and shun poverty, not out of physical necessity, but due to seeking to better their condition. Fukuyama argues that the poor spend money on things that are conveniences in order to try and better their condition, even if their debt levels rise, and therefore their ability to gain wealth diminishes. The poverty line in the United States is at a higher level than well-off people in the Third World, and yet they are not happy. The French peasantry were far better off on the eve of the French Revolution than their Prussian counterparts and their economic life had been improving for 30 years before the 14th of July, 1789, but they felt like they were losing out economically compared to the middle class. The revolutions of 1776 and 1789, therefore, did not happen overnight. The slave has to challenge the master through a process of self-education, as he teaches himself to overcome a fear of death and to claim his freedom. The slave has to reflect on his condition, and the abstraction of freedom. Hegel labels Christianity as the absolute religion, because of the historical relationship between Christian doctrine and the emergence of liberal democracy in the West. Christianity maintained that man was free in the sense of having the ability to choose between right and wrong. Christian freedom was an inner condition of the spirit. This freedom implies universal human equality, perhaps best represented in modern form by the American Declaration of Independence, which asserted that all men are created equal and famously endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Christianity's contribution to the historical process was therefore to make clear to humanity this vision of human freedom and to define the vision of human freedom that all men have dignity. Fukuyama states that the problem with Christianity is that it remains another slave ideology. Christianity posits that the realisation of human freedom does not occur in this life. Freedom is only found in the kingdom of heaven. You can therefore expect freedom, but only in another life. If you've listened to this podcast before, you might start being able to see how Fukuyama's thesis of an end of history begins to make sense in the Hegelian sense of history, and how this might relate to Bitcoin. History goes through cycles of asymmetrical proportions. The Neolithic Revolution was such a change for mankind that its type has never been seen before. It utterly changed how every person in society lived when they encountered the technologies of farming and societies. It led to an easier life, but in many ways a less satisfying one. Man gave up its freedom for this new and easier life. Technology has to a large part been trying to restore these freedoms lost since society settled down. The Neolithic revolution led to slavery and servitude for many for millennia. The era of slavery has been noticed in many theologies and political theories over the years, from Christianity to Marxism. Yet, what one can see with the coming of Bitcoin Is that in some sense it may represent a reset of history. A new epoch of exponential freedoms and opportunities that one technology created millennia ago, money, aimed at apportioning the gains from the Neolithic revolution, becomes a perfect form of the division of society and its labour by way of 21 million. The allocation of resources, the cause of war for 10,000 years, simply becomes a piece of code incorruptible and pure. The digital world represents a new and limitless bountiful resource that in many ways can simulate freedom, even if it doesn't recreate them. The value of all of society can be energized and divided up by a digitized internet token, where all bitcoins are created equal and open to all. Man will now be seen as equal. They will be seen to have equal value to society as they have equal access to storing their value in society. The inner spirit will be far happier in a society in which it is truly possible to rise and fall based on your own decisions. For Hegel, the event which created a free and equal society on earth was the French Revolution, the results of which were carried across Europe by Napoleon's victorious army. The French Revolution was the originator of the idea that self-worth came from the nation-state, in which homogenous groups of people based on citizenship of a nation gave the individual self-worth. This is somewhat different to the Anglo-Saxon conception of freedom and government, that government's only purpose is to get out of the way of the individual. In this way, the state has shaped the individual in its own conception. When de Tocqueville talks about Americans, and their passion for equality and fanaticism for practical science over theoretical science, he is describing them as people, a people's influence by the educational system and the ideas imposed by society and the government. The desire for the state to determine how the citizens learn to be a participant, rational, secular, mobile and tolerant has been programmed in by way of the nation state itself not of a group or movement of citizens demonstrating the way they want to live in a liberal democracy. The importance of work to the group is of paramount importance. Work is, according to Hegel, the essence of man. Apart from a few idle masters, all humans work. In some ways, work ethic may be comparable to the level of value one feels in society. Thomas Saul pointed to the difference in work ethics between those whose descendants were brought to the country as slaves compared to those who descended from those voluntarily immigrating to the nation from the same places. The concept of work ethic in society goes back to Max Weber and his famous The Protestant Ethic and Spirit of Capitalism. Weber highlighted, although he was not the first to do so, the relationship between Protestantism and capitalist economic development. It may be true to say that Protestants often feel closer to the state, as their religion is often a private matter between themselves and God. The state, therefore, takes up some of the spiritual life that had previously been indebted to the Catholic Church. Weber argued that the Protestant group of early capitalist entrepreneurs devoted their life to accumulating capital without the intention to consume. The same comparison to the Protestant Europeans were made to the Japanese by Robert Beller. The culture therefore impacts the ability of countries to establish and sustain liberal democracy, just as it does to a population with a strong work ethic. Yet nationalism is relatively new, as you could say the nation-state is. In some ways it is freeing for society, allowing one to feel close to the nation even if the monarchy or representatives are less light. It is based on citizenship, not religion or kingly aristocratic ties. But feeling self-worth is more than just having a passport issued from at times an arbitrarily defined nation-state. There are, for example, 8,000 languages on earth of which 700 are major languages, yet there are only 200 nation-states or so. These elements of linguistic difference in the nation-state shows one the obvious advantage of the nation-state in political order. It sees limitations that nations are not permanent or natural sources of attachment for many. Even a homogeneous island like Britain has many differences from the differences in culture to language and even political representation. If even older cultures and nation-states like Britain has to deal with this, newer nation-states in Asia, Africa and South America are going to feel this even more. Assimilation and redefinition of peoples is possible and indeed common, but not a certainty. Liberal modern states and regions from Quebec to Scotland, Tibet and the Kurds have all raised the issue of how these smaller groups who often claim sovereignty can want independence but are shackled in by modern concepts of the nation state. Some areas, of course, proved to be more difficult than others. The area that kicked off the First World War, Austro-Hungary and then Yugoslavia, had even in the 1990s and early 2000s war, fighting, and conflict over divisions of nationalism and linguistic divides. The final part of Fukuyama's work is entitled The Last Man, and he asks the question of whether historical change should be considered progress. It seems to many as though democracy is indeed progress, as it is surely better than tyranny. But is democracy truly progress? Is life in democracy satisfying? Both left and right have criticisms of liberal democracy, from the goal of equality itself, criticized by some conservatives, to the actual inequality being perceived as the primary problem with liberal democracy on the left. Nietzsche raised the question of whether recognition that can be universalized is even worth having in the first place. Is not the quality of recognition Far more important than its universality, and wouldn't making it universal devalue it? For Nietzsche, the last man is in effect a victorious slave. He agreed fully with Hegel that Christianity was a slave ideology, and democracy was a secularized form of Christianity. For me, Nietzsche's concept of the worth of universal freedom is an interesting one. In some sense, recognition can be inflated away. You can gain far more in life than you ever need or previous generations have ever had access to. But if everybody else has a TV, smartphone and a quality low to mid-range price car, then it becomes worth far less in some terms. Whether Bitcoin solves Nietzsche's problems of the value of universal recognition is perhaps the key argument in this analysis of Fukuyama's idea. Does Bitcoin actually solve the problem of recognition? Is it enough? Is the concept of a monetary layer of the internet enough to allow everybody in society an equal chance in life based upon their own value to society? The first slave at the beginning of history knew better than to risk his life for a cause because he recognises that history is full of pointless battles in which men fought over whether they should be Christian or Muslim, Protestant or Catholic, German or French. Men with modern educations are content to sit at home congratulating themselves on their broad-mindedness and lack of fanaticism. Yet man is still defined by his desire to struggle for recognition and worth, if at the end of history. Man achieves both recognition of his humanity and material abundance, then, quote, Man, properly so called, close quotes, will cease to exist, because he will have ceased to work and struggle. The end of history would mean the end of wars and bloody revolutions. History is instead replaced, according to one interpretation, by a strong community and its relationship to the capitalist marketplace. Capitalism in recent years has meant community and family values have changed markedly, with instability in the changing nature of production and therefore work creating changes in society that have changed these families and communities rapidly and radically. Successive generations have constantly retooled for new careers, often in new locales. This has hardly given self worth a boost, as the loneliness and constant change has become seen as an inherent part of capitalist democracy. Perhaps paradoxically, at the same time, people do get bored with peace and prosperity, without anything to fight for. Europe, before World War I, was as peaceful and prosperous a place as history has ever recorded. Replete with technological progress, growing equality both in financial and political life, And a civilization flowing with material prosperity. And yet, war still broke out. For many, war was encouraged and welcomed. The three major powers, France, Britain, and Germany, were all fairly democratic, with Germany only being slightly more tyrannical than Britain. Britain at the time was still largely ruled by a group of aristocrats and financiers, while Germany was ruled by the Prussian junkers and the overly self confident. Kaiser Wilhelm II. The August 1914 generation got what they wished for when they demanded war and a radical shake up. The subsequent 20th century was awash with destruction and changes in political order. And yet the 20th century was also the final victory of liberal democracy. So the question remains what is next on man's journey? Fukuyama's thesis of this end of history was radical and controversial. It was also hugely influential. In many ways, I think it has largely been accepted by many in the foreign relations world. The 1990s was a decade of largely peaceful and prosperous growth, with troubles only occurring in the country's new the liberal order, Yugoslavia, Rwanda, Russia, and the southern Arab world. But the 2000s did not see the final flourishing of democracy as the war on terror joined the war on cancer, war on poverty, and war on drugs as being in part responsible for the growth of the state at a time when the state had lost a large portion of its relevance. With few conventional wars or other state emergencies there was a need to continue the growth and overbearance of governments in ordinary citizens' lives. The control of peoples in the nation-state by the twentieth century was largely done through the control of the money supply rather than blind patriotism, something Fukuyama does not mention at all. He talks much about commerce and trade, and the nature of labour and slavery, but does not mention the decline and fall of money since 1914. Similar to Marx, managing to write poems on the nature of industry and capital, and not to mention the nature of money once. This shouldn't surprise us, but it takes you back full circle to where we began this episode. El Salvador, a sovereign state, has adopted Bitcoin as legal tender. The relationship to Bitcoin and Fukuyama's thesis is not a straight line, but through a curved line, perhaps going through a prism creating new and different colours from the original line we started out with. But I hope, having listened to this episode, You can see how Bitcoin relates to this Fukuyama world. The first man in Fukuyama's thesis is the one who frees themselves permanently from the ravages of the sovereign liberal democratic order, which could still to some extent be considered little more than regulated slavery. Freedom is not often as free as you might believe. The ability to live freely in modern society requires wealth land, some form of communal spirit and recognition from those around you, to give your life some self-worth about your place in society. The modern liberal order has failed in many areas to fully provide this since its flourishing around the end of the 19th century. The dawning of liberal democracy coincided with the destruction of the 20th century, both as liberal democracy was defended and attacked. The twentieth century was a century that fought over the nature of liberal democracy, and how it can provide not only peace, security and comfort, but also self-worth, when great material wealth and community standing was not possible for all. A society in which most people will be known to a few hundred at most throughout their lives, and then two generations after they die, they will be forgotten entirely by history. Yet El Salvador offers a new model for the reboot of history, as Bitcoin offers a chance for all nations on Earth to give their peoples a new social contract. Self-worth for El Salvadorians is now governed by code. Simple binary code can give a new meaning and drive for mankind, as the monetary basis of the world is reordered, and given to the people for fair and equal opportunity. This new opportunity Will turn self-worth into a free market enterprise. Coming from the Anglo-Saxon view, the development of a Bitcoin capitalist base for every person on earth will prove victorious in being able to apportion out self-worth in a worthwhile but also egalitarian basis. The new capitalism that emerged in the 20th century across the planet, from Singapore to Thailand, Indonesia, India, South Korea and Taiwan has gone to every place on earth, ending up dominating in China, Africa, Eastern Europe, and South and Central America. It has led to decades of global growth, turning the world middle class as billions were lifted out of poverty. Yet all these newly industrial nations are now dealing with the same issues. Growth rates have largely slowed down, technological development has slowed and even paused in many areas, and dissatisfaction with the current deal is slowly creeping in for many. The constant rat race of life, with sky-high debt levels across the world, is seen by many as a challenge to the current order. Some are even turning back to long disproved ideas like communism and authoritarianism, or simply getting out of city life to live the simple life. The answer to all of this from El Salvador is to be a pioneer by adopting Bitcoin as this reset. By reordering how money is distributed and allocated. And using a decentrally distributed digital asset, Bitcoin will start a new history of how society is governed and managed, but also how each individual human views themselves. Bitcoin will result in a new social contract, in a new meaning of life and new desires. The most natural result of Bitcoin will be the reordering of society into a planet of merchants and shopkeepers. Very much like Napoleon called Britain during its height, the easy access to commerce online will turn everybody into Phoenician-style traders, surfing the web to buy and sell. What was a job, albeit a prosperous one, for a small percentage of humanity? The privilege of not working per se, but buying and selling products, combined With the new development of digital skills and opportunity, and the rise of automation could lead to a sense of well-being that would eclipse anything the old history has given us. Based on the back of new technology, there will be new reason and cause for man. Working will become commerce, and almost everybody will in some way be considered merchants and traders. Some may buy and sell online, and some in person. Many will create products and services from scratch and sell them, Some may sell their labour as independent contractors, with the freedom to move from job to job and place to place, until you find your home. Everybody will have unequal access to the wealth of the world, and the continuing productivity rises of the global populace, through the binding binary code of Bitcoin and its deflationary effects. This is, in effect, the Fukuyama interpretation of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is therefore not a part of destroying history or erasing it, but in the Greek and Hegelian sense, resetting it. Bitcoin is, of course, revolutionary technology. It is the most revolutionary thing in perhaps thousands of years. The effects of it will be quick and civilization altering The El Salvadorian government has committed itself to this interpretation of Fukuyama and to Bitcoin as the start of a new history. El Salvador is the first in a chain of events that will revolutionize the world. Eventually, every place on earth will adopt Bitcoin. It might not be a government adopting it. Bitcoin adoption in some places may take a violent overthrow or a peaceful rebellion. And yet, it will happen. Some territories may break apart or merge with more successful ones. Nation states could be persuaded to sell lands to private individuals for new societies. Or other governments, like Alaska and the Louisiana Purchase of the 19th century. Some territories may be ran by merchants, cartels, private enterprises, or even forms of cooperatives. Political orders in the post-Bitcoin world will proliferate into many different forms. 7 billion people, living in 200 or so, of the same type of political model. The nation-state liberal democracy will come to an end especially when this model was forced upon large parts of the world, where arbitrary borders were drawn around and through groups of peoples more ancient than the 1648 Treaty of Westphalia. Some territories may become almost anarchical. Western Sahara already is, and Somalia of course, Colombia, and parts of the Amazon. Even the Russian Wilderness is an area where the nation-state, even today, struggles to impose much authority. These types of areas may proliferate. Even in more ordered places Spain, the US, Canada and Australia could see types of anarchism rising in rural regions if the nation state becomes largely unwanted and unneeded. And yet some places may stay pretty much the same. The island of Britain will most likely be governed by a Parliament passing laws in pretty much the same form as it does today. It will just be a government with far less power than it has today. Japan too, such a homogenous island, may see little to no political change at all. India could split into a thousand different territories, or it could remain one liberal democratic republic. Africa could see the end of the imposition of the nation-state by the West, and to be split into more natural political entities like free cities, monarchies, republics, who knows what might happen. The notion of the end of history is merely a trick of history. So how you interpret it and how cyclical you think it is, is up to you. But it does, like parts of history, flow in a circle. Never a circle you can predict, because the problems of society are so difficult to solve that it can take 10,000 years for a certain cycle to finish. But when it does, Society upgrades and becomes fixed into this new model, which causes many upsides, and yet it creates new problems you cannot anticipate. What was that famous Marx quote about Hegel's view of the world? Quote, Hegel remarks, somewhere, that all great world historical facts and personages occur, as it were, twice. He has forgotten to add, the first time is tragedy, the second is farce, Close What Bitcoin represents from this point of view is the solution to the problem of what happens if you have a growing population with finite resources and land and the need to allocate these resources as decentrally and as fairly as possible in order to create the fairest and best society for all. Bitcoin is a solution to the problems of the Neolithic revolution that the subsequent industrial revolution never managed to solve. The Industrial Revolution might have increased production, but it was not apportioned equally. The bounty of the information world, however, will now be shared equally. So thank you for listening to that episode. We will be back next time with an episode on Monero. See you then.